Old Testament reading this morning is uh, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. We're picking up in the middle of the story of Jacob. Uh, and this story is referenced in the passage we'll be reading from the Gospel of John. So we're kind of jumping right in the middle. So just for a little bit of context, Jacob is known as a deceiver. He deceived his brother in order to attain the birthright. And then Esau, his brother, understandably, is angry at him but wants to kill him. And so now Jacob is fleeing from the face of his brother. And in the midst of his fleeing, before he returns, before God changes his name to Israel, God gives him this vision uh, as he makes his way out of Canaan. So uh, Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Hear now God's word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on it, on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading and our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. As we conclude chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 35 through 51. Didn't get into chapter 2 like I had hoped, but we are concluding chapter 1 this morning as we continue to hear of these eyewitnesses to the truth of Jesus. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and blessed Lord, Lord, who has caused his holy scripture to be written for our learning, we ask that you would grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest your word, and that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us through our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ as we conclude chapter one of John's gospel as we have made our way through the prologue and now these uh, verses bearing the first witness witness the first testimony to Jesus I want to remind us of the question that I've posed to us uh, a few times throughout this series as we've making our way through these verses and that question is the simple question that seems to uh, motivate John that seems to be driving a lot of what John is trying to do and that question is Again, who is Jesus? We want to ask that question. We want to see John answering that question again this morning. Who is Jesus? And as we reflect on what we've been told so far about Jesus, what John the Apostle has already revealed to us, we can see that there have been many uh, big themes that John has revealed, these grand statements about who Jesus is. Right at the very beginning, John tells us that he is God, that he is the Word, that he is the Eternal One. That later on he tells us that he is the light and then that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. That John has this very large scope, this, you know, uh, as, as Pastor Nick has said before as he's been preaching through Ephesians, this cosmic scope, if you will, of what Jesus is all about. That he is God, that he is doing something in all of creation, that he is from the beginning, he created the world, all these big ideas that John wants us to hold As we think about Jesus, even as he gets into the testimony last time we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist, we see again these big themes that are being unfolded about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise, that he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is the the one who has been anticipated throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And then, of course, John the Baptist's proclamation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? These big concepts that have been unfolding before us. And as we hear these big ideas, these lofty ideas, these grand truths about Jesus, 
We now want to see a little bit differently what John the Apostle, John the author, is telling us about Jesus. John the Apostle changes his focus a little bit from these grand, big, broad concepts, and he gets, if you will, he gets personal with what he tells us about Jesus. John now turns from these lofty statements now to Jesus himself in these very personal, very intimate interactions that Jesus is going to have with his first disciples. That Jesus will be talking, he'll be communicating, he'll be asking questions, he'll be answering questions, he'll be calling people to certain things, he'll be inviting people. So as we see this shift that John, the writer, is laying before us, what we want to see this morning, not only do we see Jesus in these grand, lofty, profound terms, but this morning what we want to see is John continues to answer this question, who is Jesus, that John the Apostle now records these deeply personal accounts of the calling of Jesus' first disciples, and in doing so continues to bear, in a very personal way, he bears witness about who Jesus is. So again, this question, who is Jesus, we want to answer, but in, I guess you, you could say in a more personal way this morning. So the first thing that John reveals to us as we see these interactions this morning, again, who is Jesus, the first thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who names us, that he is the one who names us. As this text begins, we have John the Baptist. Again, he's you know, doing what he has been doing. He's been proclaiming this message about the coming Messiah. And this, uh, in this text, we are introduced to two of his disciples. One of them, we find out later, is named. His name is Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And then this other apostle, or this other disciple, at least for now, is unnamed. We don't know who he is. And yet, it is throughout the history of the church and just through the evidence of the Gospel of John, it seems pretty clear, I think we can make a safe assumption that this is actually John, the author himself, who is uh, not naming himself, but he is identifying himself in the story that we now have the first two disciples, Andrew and most likely John, the apostle. As we see this scene, John, you know, the, the Baptist, he has these two disciples with him. As we see this scene, we are a little bit, I'm sure, unfamiliar. We don't have the context of disciples. We don't see discipleship as would have been, you know, performed in this age. As we want to Think briefly what it meant to be a disciple of someone. And as we see John with his two disciples, the first thing we would want to say, we want to recognize, is that in this time that disciples, when you had a, a rabbi that you were a disciple of, that you were fiercely loyal to that rabbi, that you would have been, you know, you could say attached at the hip, that disciples would have, you know, ate with their rabbis, they would have slept with their rabbis, they would have walked. Uh, throughout Judea, Samaria, with their rabbi. They would have gone everywhere and done everything with their teacher. So we have the scene where John, with his two disciples, who he's probably presumably been with for quite a while, he says again, this message he's already said, Behold the Lamb of God. And immediately, immediately as he proclaims this, his two disciples who have known him, who have followed him, who have chosen to commit themselves to him, they immediately leave him which might to us seem you know, a little bit rude, a little bit presumptuous that they would just up and leave this man who they've committed themselves to. And yet, you know, consistent with John's ministry, we see this as the intent. This is what John has been preparing them for his whole ministry. As he's been saying, I'm not the one, one greater than me is coming. He now says, behold, the one that I've been telling you about is here. And so his disciples being prepared for this, knowing this was the case, they leave him. They go and they join up, or they, at least they try to join up with someone greater than John, this promised one. And as they come to Jesus, as they hear John's words, as they turn to Jesus, Jesus asks them, you know, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? And they ask a question which to us might seem a little strange, a little random. They ask Jesus, they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? 
This question might be strange to us, but essentially what they were doing was they were asking Jesus to be his disciples. They were trying to identify themselves with him. During this time, it was very common for a disciple to live with his rabbi, to to sleep in the same quarters as his rabbi. And so when they're asking him first, well, they acknowledge him. They say, rabbi, they call him teacher. And then they say, where are you staying? The implication is we want to stay with you. We want to be joined with you. We want to become your uh, disciples. And then Jesus very simply says, you know, he said, they say, where are you staying? And he says, well, come and see. Come and you will see. You will behold where I am, say- and, am staying. And in this very simple statement from Jesus, Jesus is inviting them. He is accepting their request to be his disciples. He invites them to come to follow him to be his disciples. So again, we want to think about then as, as they now commit themselves to Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple in this age, in this context? What were they signing up for, you could ask? Well, to be a disciple of someone meant, essentially, that you were identifying yourself with that person. Right? Even the text says that before they were disciples of John, they were identified by who they followed, that they followed John the Baptist. And now they are identified as followers of Jesus. And as they would have identified themselves as followers of Jesus, they now are committing themselves to learning from him, to modeling their life, to shaping their lives around his teaching, around his pattern of life, by uh, imitating him in their walk, that Jesus was becoming their master in every aspect of their life, that they were committing their whole entire life, their whole identity, that they were bearing the name of Jesus in all that they did. And of course, this is a very singular thing, right, that you can't be the disciple of multiple people, or uh, you can't follow multiple people, you can be the disciple of one individual. So Andrew now and this other disciple, they become disciples of Jesus. They commit themselves to him. And then soon after, right, in in Andrew, in his excitement, he's become a disciple of Jesus. He's found this one that he's been looking for. He then goes immediately to seek out his brother, Simon. He tells him, Simon, we found this one. We found the Messiah, you know, the, the Assumption being right now, come, you too. You need to follow him just as I've followed him. And as Simon comes, he you know, follows his brother. He says, okay, I'll come see who you're talking about. This very, another strange interaction occurs between Jesus and now Simon. Right? Simon's never met Jesus before. They've never seen each other before. And instead of introducing, saying, you know, hi, I'm Jesus. Hi, I'm Simon. Jesus just declares out of the blue, he sees Simon. And he says, you are Simon, the son of John you shall be called Cephas. This is a very strange thing to do, right? To meet someone for the first time and the first thing you say to them is to give them a new name, right? Say, you're not, actually, you're not going to be Simon anymore. Your name is Cephas. Your name is now Peter. And presumably Simon, you know, might have rightly looked at Jesus and thought, you know, what, what right have you to change my name? What are you saying? How could you simply look at me and decide to give me a new name? And yet in this act, in this very simple act of Jesus... This act shows that Jesus is assuming authority over Simon, over his life. That Jesus has the authority, you could say, to to rename him, to impute a new name to Simon. He says, no, now you are going to be Peter. You are going to be Cephas. You are going to have, you could say, a new identity. I've just given you a new identity. When we think of identity in our own age, you know, we... You could say we live in very confusing times, right? That identity is somewhat confusing. It's somewhat nebulous in our own age. If you think about, I mean, most of human history, for the most part, uh, human identity, who we were, what we were, what we stood for was pretty much 
set in stone in many ways, right? Where you lived, you know, the, the status that you had in life, the, the ranking, the hierarchy, who you affiliated with, where you uh, traveled, who you worked for, all those things for the most part were pretty much set. You didn't have a lot of mobility, and yet we live certainly in an age that is, you could say, very fluid when it comes to identity. And in fact, one of the fundamental tenets, you could say, of our age, one of the fundamental things that, you could say, defines this age is this idea of individual self-expression, that we have the right, that we have the obligation even to identify ourselves, to define ourselves by the things that we want, the things that we desire, that we need to look around us and pick and choose those things that we find most attractive, most you know, uh, profitable for who we want to become, and we identify ourselves by those things. Certainly this idea of identity that is around us certainly can creep into the church as well. That so often Christianity can become about our own identity, how we identify ourselves. That Christianity can become about the, thing that I, the things that I have chosen, that it is a good thing for my life, that Christianity is a thing that improves my life, that improves my social standing, that improves my well-being, and so I will identify myself as a Christian. And yet, so we see in this passage, as Jesus calls his first disciples, as he names Peter, we want to remember that to be a Christian is primarily and centrally to be not defined as you know, something we've bestowed on ourselves, something we've claimed for ourselves, but to be defined by Christ, to be under Christ's authority, to be named by him, to be his disciple. So if someone were to ask you, you know, who fundamentally, who are you? What is it that makes you, you? We could truly say, and we ought to truly say, as these new disciples have, that we are disciples of Christ, that we are named by Christ, that we are identified by Christ. Of course, as we look at this scene, you know, we want to, or as a, as a caveat, we, we want to recognize the uniqueness of this scene, right? This is not just in, you know, certain random disciples, but these are the first apostles of Jesus' church. Jesus is doing something unique here as he calls these first disciples. Even in Peter's naming, he's doing something unique there, right? He's going to be this rock, as he will later tell in the book of Matthew, this rock that Peter is, you know, one of the foundations of the church. And yet still, we want to recognize that we too, just like these men, we are disciples. We are named by Christ. Even we see this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, the last thing he says to these very men, to his apostles, is he gives them the Great Commission. And he uses this language, again, of discipleship. He says, you are to go into all the world, and you are to, what? To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. That just like these men, even though their situation is you know, unique, that we too, at the beginning of our Christian life, we are named, we are made disciples, and we have God's name put upon us, right? The triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Spirit. We are named as Jesus' people. We are Christians. In this text this morning, right? These men haven't proven themselves, really. There was no initiation. There was no uh, you know, interview with them. They simply asked Jesus to follow him, and Jesus said, come and see, come and be my disciples, in the, same, in the same way, we too, we are called by Jesus to be his disciples. We are named at the beginning of our Christian life as his people. So when we think about our identity, when we think about what is most true about you, it's not ultimately what you choose to be. It's not what, you, what persona you have placed upon yourself. It's not even the deeds that you have done in this life. What is most true about you is that identity. Again, just as 
Jesus imputes this name to Peter, right? That you are not Simon, but you are now Peter. You are now the rock. So too we, at the beginning of our Christian life, we were named, we were imputed a new identity. Jesus himself named us as Christians, that we are, as God's people, holy. We are righteous. We are beloved. We are children of God, as John previously tells us in the prologue, that this name has been placed upon us. You know, not something we've earned, not something we've done, but Jesus himself naming us. That personally Jesus gives us this name, just as he personally gave this name to his disciples, as he personally gave this name to Simon Peter. But not only is Jesus the one who names us, who calls us his own, who calls us his disciples, but as we see in this text, Jesus is also the one who knows us. That Jesus names us, and that Jesus also knows us. I'm trying to go with the alliteration, but there is a silent K, I recognize that. But Jesus is the one who knows us. And we see this as Jesus continues to call these first disciples. Jesus now decides he's, in, you know, he's by the, the, uh, the Jordan River. He decides to make his way to Galilee, to his home territory. And as he makes his way, he has two interactions, two more calling, two more disciples that he wants to call to uh, himself. We see first his interaction with the disciple Philip, and then through Philip's interaction, then Jesus comes to Nathaniel. Before we get into these two stories, these two interactions, I want to note that they are quite different interactions. That when we see uh, Philip's interaction with Jesus, it basically gets one verse and then it moves on. That there's just this one quick verse. Jesus you know, says one thing to Philip and then he moves on. And yet with Nathaniel, we get this whole section. We get this really interesting story, this kind of back and forth, this you know, almost, at, well, at one point, this uh, funny story, this interesting story. And as we think about these two, this kind of simple one, then it seems like you know, the story just kind of moves on. Then this one that kind of maybe lands a little bit more for us, we might ask the question, which of these two stories do we prefer? Which of these two stories seems like the better story, the better calling story? My own you know, Christian you know, history, maybe many of you are in the same camp, at the, the tradition that you were raised, that there was this heavy emphasis on this idea of testimony, right? This idea that you had to have a very convincing, a very powerful, a very profound conversion story. And that really showed how you know, deeply you had been you know, committed, your, or deeply you had committed your life to Jesus, that you had this powerful moment when you came to Jesus. For me, I had what you could call a boring testimony, a very simple testimony, right? That my, my mom came to faith when I was little. She took me to church when I was two, and I don't recall a day that I didn't know the Lord. And for me, that was boring. That was simple. I didn't have this amazing, miraculous story of Jesus doing something profound in my life. At least that's the way that I saw it. Whereas I'd look at other people's, you know, other friends, I'd hear their stories where God was doing something exciting. God saved them from, you know, a life of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? God dramatically did something in their life. And we, of course, don't want to disparage either, right? We don't want to disparage the simple story of coming to faith or the powerful, you could say, the dramatic story of someone coming to faith. But with this, you know, with either of these, we want to be careful of the danger, that we often can put on our own experience. Right? That thinking about our coming to Christ in terms of our testimony is quite dangerous, that it often puts the emphasis on our own actions, right? That, you know, I made this decision for Christ, that something powerful happened to me and I came to Christ, I chose Christ. 
what John, the, the author, wants us to focus on, rather, in both of these stories is that Jesus is the primary actor. Jesus is the one who is doing the work. Jesus is the one who is doing the calling of both of these men, both Philip and Nathaniel. See this again, even in this very simple story, this very simple interaction in verse 43. John says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And that's it. <laughs> that's the last thing that we hear about Philip and his coming to become a disciple of Jesus. And yet in this very simple story, it is also, we could say, very beautiful in its simplicity. We see two things happen. First, Jesus decides to go to Galilee, and it says that he found Philip. It doesn't say that he stumbled upon him. It doesn't say that he bumped into Philip. It doesn't say that he you know, met him on the road, but it says that he found Philip, that verb meaning that he went out of his way to seek him. It's the same verb that we see Andrew. Andrew went and found Peter, and then Philip himself will go and find Nathaniel. We see Jesus goes and finds Philip. And as he finds him, intentionally goes and seeks him, Jesus then calls him. He says, Philip, follow me. I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, we did not stumble upon Jesus. We did not choose Jesus. We did not find our way to Jesus. But this text reminds us that Jesus, just as he went and sought and found Philip, Jesus found us. Jesus sought us. He knows us and he was looking for us. We see an intentionality here in both of these stories that Jesus is looking for his disciples. And this is a theme that we see, you know, builds in the gospel of John, that Jesus is intentional, that he's seeking his followers, that he is calling those that he came to save. This is you know, made most clear, it comes to a head in John chapter 10 as Jesus calls himself the great shepherd of his sheep, right? that he as the shepherd that he knows his sheep, he knows them by name, that he seeks his sheep and that he calls his sheep to himself, and more than this, that his sheep recognize his voice. We see this even in this very simple passage that Jesus is looking for his sheep, Philip. He calls him, and Philip, knowing the voice of his master, follows Christ. So again, in both of these, Jesus is doing the work. Jesus is the seeker. Jesus is the one who calls us to himself, knowing who is his and calling them to faith personally. So for us, you know, whether you can't even remember a day when you didn't know Christ, Right? If you were called from your earliest days, or if you came, you could say, kicking and screaming. Right, If you had a long period where you wrestled with the things of faith. In either case, we want to remember Jesus knew you. Jesus pursued you. Jesus called you to himself. But not only does Jesus know us in that sense that he is looking for us, that he calls us, but we also see from this text that Jesus knows everything about us. We see, and we see this in particular in his interaction now with Nathanael. Jesus comes to Nathanael in verse uh, excuse me, 46, 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In order to understand what's happening here in this, again, third strange interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, we need to know two things. One is primary. The second one is kind of Maybe a little bit debatable, but the first one is this. We need to know the story of Jacob, which is why, in part, I read what I read from the Old Testament, that story of Jacob right, having this vision. But more broadly, we need to know the whole story of Jacob. We have to have that whole story in mind, especially as we see Jesus' uh, opening words to 
uh, to Nathaniel. But the second thing we want to know is there's that Jesus, it seems, is using an idiom here. He's using a turn of phrase which is not familiar to us as he uses this phrase, under a fig tree. And this is a little more debatable, but I think it holds here. I think it makes sense with the logic of the text that to be under the fig tree is another way of saying that you are studying the Torah, that you are meditating on God's word. So Jesus meets Nathanael, and the first thing he says is, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And with this, what Jesus is essentially doing is Jesus is making a joke. He's making a, a pun on the story of Jacob. Jesus is seeing Nathanael, and the assumption here, what we read into the text is we see, you know, he'll say, you were under the fig tree, you were reading your Bible. Jesus is saying, you were reading the story of Jacob. And he shows that by saying, oh look, here is a son of Israel in whom there is no deceit. The point being, Jacob, his name was Jacob, his name was then later changed to Israel, and his identity at the beginning of the story is that he was a deceiver, right, that he deceives his brother in order to gain the birthright. And so Jesus is essentially saying, you're not like Jacob, you're like Israel, right? You're not a deceiver, you are like a true son of Israel. You are like the model Israel. And Nathaniel is blown away. He can't believe that Jesus not only knew what he was doing, he knows what he was reading, he knows what he was thinking about. And Nathaniel says, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. You know something about me that no one could ever know. You knew that I was studying, that I was contemplating the story of Jacob, what it meant, what the story was all about. And you knew that I was pondering these things before I ever met you. Nathaniel shows this, right, in verse 49, or excuse me, 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So Jesus knew him, knew something about him that was so personal, that was so secret, no one could have possibly known what he was doing. And this act prompts him to call him the Messiah, to say, you are the Son of God, you, or you are the, the, uh, you are the King of Israel, you are the Messiah. And his response, because of what Jesus knows about him, is a response of faith, right? Jesus even says, you believed because I knew these things about you. And this idea, again, is is unfolded in the Gospel of John, that Jesus knows us intimately, that he knows everything about us. In the next chapter, John chapter 2, it'll say, John the, the author will write that Jesus did not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of man, that he knew man so well that he did not entrust himself to them. Or even you know, uh, more you know, vividly, in John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. Right? And he tells her, you know, he basically confronts her with her sin of having multiple uh, you know, infidelities. And what is the woman's witness after meeting with Jesus, after coming to faith? Jesus, uh, the woman's witness to all her friends in Samaria, she says, come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. Right? This is a theme that Jesus knows everything that we've ever done, which perhaps for us can be scary. Right? This isn't maybe a pleasant thought for us to think about, that this means Jesus knows our sin, that Jesus knows our failures. Right? We even think of Peter, who Jesus has just called to himself, and yet Jesus calls him knowing that Peter will one day deny Christ, that he will forsake his master. Or all the disciples, really, all of them will one day flee from him as he goes to the cross. Even in our own you know, uh, lives, in our own minds, we know the depths of our sin, the depths of our struggles with sin, and we maybe don't want Jesus to know that. But Scripture says Jesus knows those things about us. And it's not in spite of those things, but because of those things, because he knows the 
depth of our sin, our need for salvation, that Jesus comes to us, that Jesus calls us, that he seeks us. And even more than this, this ought to be a comfort for us as God's people, that Jesus knows you truly, that Jesus knows your sorrows, that Jesus knows your worries, he knows your burdens, he knows those things that give you anxiety and fear in the middle of the night that you're wrestling with, and Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you more than anyone could possibly ever know you. So in these two interactions, Jesus reveals that, Je- that he is seeking us, that he knows us intimately, that he's looking for us, and that he also knows us to our core. Well, lastly this morning, not only does Jesus, uh, not only does Jesus name us as his people, not only does he know us, but the last thing we want to see in this final statement from Jesus is that Jesus is the one we need. He's the one we need. And by saying this, what I want to stress is that Jesus is more than those other two things that we've already talked about. It is not just that Jesus names us. It is not just that Jesus knows us, but that Jesus is who we need. It is a wonderful thing to know that Jesus has named us, that we have our identity rooted in Christ. It is a wonderful thing to know that Jesus knows us intimately, that he knows every thought in our head, that he knows every step that we are going to take. But we also want to stress that this in and of itself is not enough. We see this even in Jesus' reply to Nathanael. In verse 50, he says, "Because, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, but you will see greater things than these. This, is, this verse is an affirmation of, of Nathanael's faith, right? That it is through these means that often we come to Jesus, that we come to Jesus as the one who knows us, who loves us, who names us. We come to him in that way, but Jesus says on top of that, you will see greater things. And in doing, in, in giving this statement, this promise, Jesus then brings up this other you know, image from the life of Jacob, which we read this morning, this image of this stairway to heaven. And in doing so, Jesus pivots, right? We talked about this idea that you know, John kind of went big and then he kind of goes and focuses on the personal, on the intimate. Well, now Jesus, in his own words, is kind of going broad again. He's going big. He's making this bold statement about what he came to do. In verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember the story that we read, Genesis 28, right? Jacob has this vision of these angels ascending and descending on, in, in the ESV it says, a ladder. It wasn't really a ladder. It wasn't, you know, what we would picture like a wooden ladder. It was more than likely what we would picture as a stepped pyramid, a ziggurat, which was, you know, a, a, a common religious temple, you know, structure in the day of Jacob, right? That there was this temple uh, mountain that was reaching up to God and the angels were ascending and descending on this temple mountain, and as Jacob is given this vision, it's not just a vision, right? Not just this amazing, whoops, this amazing picture of, one sec, you know, that God gave him, right? It's not just something to, for him to say, wow, but in the midst of this image, as God comes to him in this vision, God gives him this promise, or at least reminds him of a promise that he's already made. Genesis 28 13, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the east and the west and the north and the south. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And in giving this vision, God is 
giving a promise to Jacob that I'm going to fulfill what I started. I'm going to be faithful to my promises to Abraham. That I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you blessing. That you can be confident that I will fulfill what I started. And also with this vision, not only is it an affirmation of a promise, but it is also a recognition to Jacob or a reminder to Jacob that man cannot reach God on his own strength. Man has been cut off from fellowship with God. In this vision, there's a recognition of sin and separation, which goes back all the way to Genesis 3. Right, This uh, curse that has been pronounced on mankind. Even if we go back to chapter 10 and 11, right, the story of the Tower of Babel, again, would have been this pyramid-like structure that man were trying to build to make their way up to God. And God you know, confuses their purposes. And here the reminder, the point is that God Himself has to make that way to man. God Himself has to establish that connection. That God has to create a way for man to be reconciled to God. So in short, this vision tells Jacob, reminds Jacob that communication with God, access to God needs to be given, needs to be granted, needs to be affected by God. And after this vision, Jacob goes on to name this place Bethel, which means house of God, right? That in this place, it was the temple, the very dwelling place of God on earth. So what is Jesus saying as he attributes this passage to himself, right? He says that you will see angels descending and ascending, not on a temple, not on a structure, but on me, on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am the true Bethel. I am the true house of God. I am the true place in this creation where heaven and earth meet. From Jesus' own lips, we have an affirmation of the testimony that John the Apostle has already given us all the way back in the prologue, right? That Jesus took on flesh and that he tabernacled among us. He became the dwelling place of God with man. This theme, which again will run through the book of John, that Jesus in chapter 2 will say, I am the true temple, right? Tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up. I am the true temple of God. Later on he'll say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the only access point to the Father. I am the door, he will say, I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the only access point for God's people. In a word, we could say, if we could summarize what Jesus is claiming of himself, we could say Jesus is claiming that he is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only one that restores our relationship to the Father. He's the only one who can reconcile us to God. That Jesus and Jesus alone, he affirms to Nathaniel and to the rest of the disciples there, Jesus himself is the one who unites heaven and earth through his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And here's the point as we think about these two extremes, right? The, the very personal but the very profound things that John is saying. What we want to affirm is that you know, it's not either or of these things. It's not just the personal stuff or just the big profound cosmic stuff. It's both. John wants to affirm both of these things are true about Jesus. They're not being pitted together here, but they're being beautifully brought together in this account of Jesus and the disciples. For some of us, you know, it's easy for us to just focus on the personal aspect, right? That Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. It's just about me and Jesus and my own intimate relationship with Him. And that's true that it is, you know, in part that that is part of our salvation, that we have this new, profound, deep relationship with our Lord. But we can often miss, because of that, we can miss the fact that God is doing something much bigger through the person and work of Jesus, that God is working to unite all of heaven and earth. 
For some of us, we can focus on just the big picture stuff, right? That God is doing something big in the world. God is going to restore all things. He's going to do great things. We can be confident in that. And yet we can often forget that God loves you, that God did these things for you personally, that he personally calls you to faith. And John wants to weave these two things together, that God is both big, profound, he's greater than we can ever imagine, but in Christ, he is personal to us. He has come to us in the flesh. That it is certainly Jesus who has named us. It is Jesus who has sought us for himself. It is Jesus who knows us intimately and personally. But this is the same Jesus who John has been speaking about all along. That it is the word, it is the light, it is the one who has come in the flesh. It is this same Jesus, the same God-man who knows you and who has saved you. Even in this beautiful invitation that we hear, this refrain, right? Jesus himself says, come and see. And then his disciples say, come and see, right? This thing that is repeated. Even in this, we see both the personal aspect, right? This invitation personally to come to Jesus, but also this invitation to see, see the great things that God is doing through Christ in the world. To look forward, you know, Jesus even says, you will see greater things than these. We too are looking forward to those greater things that In this account, we see both the bigness, the vastness of the gospel, but also the personal nature of it. And so as we conclude, let us hear the gospel in its vastness and its grandness, but also in the fact that it comes to us personally in Christ. As we hear these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this testimony that we have been given from the Apostle John, this testimony which reminds us about who your Son is to us and for us. Lord, we thank you that we see him as the one who has called each and every one of us, and also that he has called us into something larger than we could ever have conceived of. And so we thank you for the greatness of the redemption that we have found in him. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us now